0: Open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, that's, that's why we're here, uh, we want to get into God's Word, we'd rather hear from the Lord than from me, uh, so let's open up our Bibles. We're, we're, we're walking through um, this incredible letter together, and we've come into chapter 4 verses 12 to 19 on the topic of persecution and suffering, and again, I said this to you before, it's this, uh, we want to prepare ourselves for p- when persecution comes, we want to be ready for that. Um, some of you are in the midst of persecution now, and this is a, a perfect timed section of scripture for you to to be reminded of of how to respond to persecution and suffering that is happening in your life. Uh, we know this for sure that for Christians, even living in America now, that the persecution of believers is on the rise, it is not going away. Um, it is probably more intense. it is nothing like different countries around the world, but nonetheless. Uh, Christians are not loved. They're hated. And so <laughs> we need to be prepared for how to respond to that and be ready for that. And so we're just taking our time uh, through this passage together. Let's just start by reading it. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to uh, 19 together. It says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as, as though something strange were happening to you. while doing good. Peter gives us one last in-depth look at suffering and persecution. He started off the book talking about suffering and hardship. He continued that into chapter two and into chapter three and now into chapter four. And eventually he'll close it out in chapter five and in verse 10 about suffering for a little while. And the God of all grace, as it says in 510, who called you to eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you But in chapter four, in the section that we just read, Peter uh, goes uh, really in depth, if you will, into understanding why persecution happens and the response that believers are to have to that. And we started this uh, a couple weeks ago. And let me just remind you and give you the outline that we have, how Christians are to view persecution. The first thing is this, is that we are not to, to be surprised when we suffer. Do not be surprised when you suffer, when persecution comes upon you. And I said this already, when Jesus was here on the earth and he walked on the earth and he did all these incredible things and all these wonderful things for people, he healed people, he fed thousands of people, he showed all kinds of compassion towards people, he even raised the man from the dead and the result of all of that was what? They hated him. It didn't matter what Jesus did, they hated him. They hated him so much that they put him on the cross, nailed him to a cross, and killed him, no matter how many acts of kindness Jesus would do. And the same is true for the believers. No matter how much we want to reach into society and and be the kind Christian to other people, the reality is this. If you display the glory of God in your life, you too will be hated. And so don't be surprised by that. As if it's strange that people are persecuting you because of your faith. Secondly, we saw this, view suffering as testing. Look what it says. It says the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Suffering, trials, hardship, persecution is not just allowed by God, it's ordained by God. God is under the sovereign control of every single uh, hardship, every uh, act of persecution against you. He knows it's going to happen. He ordains it to happen. He puts it in your life for a specific reason. And here he is talking about testing your faith to see if you are genuine. Are you a genuine believer? So it proves your faith and then it prunes your faith. One person said it like this. Faith makes a Christian. Life proves a Christian. Trials confirms a Christian. And death crowns a Christian. And so this isn't strange that's happening. It's there to test you. Number three is this. You guys are thinking this is the fastest he's ever moved before. (laughs) Number three is this. Rejoice that you are identified with Christ in suffering. Rejoice. It says in verse 13, rejoice that you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, what persecution does is it identifies the Christian. It identifies who is genuine and who is real. And and in that identification, then we are united with Christ in the sufferings that he had. Christ was insulted for his faith. You are insulted with your faith. And in that way, you share in the sufferings of Christ. You're identified with Christ. Our sufferings have no atoning value as Christ did. Our, our sufferings have no redemptive value as Christ's sufferings did have redemptive value. But when we're insulted and we're slandered for the truth, we identify with him in his sufferings. We identify with him in his hardships, in his persecution, and we rejoice because we know that we are united with Christ forever. The rejoicing doesn't happen because you are insulted. It is because that, uh, that persecution proves that you are identified with him. And in that, you rejoice. And you rejoice. As it says there, as you share in Christ's sufferings, you rejoice. And you're glad when his glory is revealed. Number four is this then. Suffer for the name of Christ, not for doing evil. We touched on this last time. Not all persecution warrants God's blessing. Okay, not all persecution warrants God's blessing. I called it self-inflicted persecution. Actually, I didn't. Peter did. Self-inflicted persecution. There's one kind of persecution that is uh, for the name of Christ, as you stand for Christ, as you live for Christ, as your life reflects the glory of God in your life, there is persecution for that. And for that persecution, you are blessed. There's another kind of persecution that comes upon you because, as Peter says, uh, verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. The persecution that comes upon you because of your own sin. And he picks out these sins and he and he takes it from the greatest to the least. The murderer is going to get persecuted because he is a murderer, the thief, the same and the evildoer, the same. And then he comes all the way down to a meddler. And we talked about a meddler. We say, what, what is a meddler like? Why did he add meddler to this list? I mean, that is an extreme uh, one side to the next murderer all the way down to meddler and a meddler is, is simply that's involved in somebody's business overly involved in somebody's business. He's he's critical of somebody else. He's always stirring up strife because they're involved in somebody else's life so much that they're critical about them all the time. There's no blessing in that when they turn around and they disassociate with you because they know you're a gossip. Say, oh, well, I'm suffering. I'm persecuting for Jesus. Well, no, you, you put that upon yourself. You put that upon yourself. But when your faith in God influences, listen, when your faith in God influences the decision at work and it makes you get fired or because you've got to move out of that company, you got to move away from that job into a different location, that's persecution. Not because you are meddling into the affairs of somebody else. That's brought upon yourself. Proverbs 26, 17 says this. Like one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with the strife not belonging to him, you're grabbing the ears of a dog? When you meddle in the life of somebody else, well, what's going to happen when you do that? You're going to get bit. And so think about that. The next time you're meddling in, into somebody else's affairs and you're overly critical about them and you want to tear them down and you want to gossip about them, you're grabbing the ears of a pit bull, and eventually you're going to get pit. You're going to get bit. You're gonna get bit. So what is he saying? He's saying this, ultimately, Peter's saying this, evaluate why there's persecution in your life. Is it brought upon upon yourself? Is it brought upon because you stand for the name of Christ? And if you stand for the name of Christ, then what comes of that is blessing. Not only is there blessing, as it says in verse 14, but the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. The glory of God, the word there for the Shekinah of God, the glory of God rests upon that person who is suffering for the name of Christ. All right, here's this, number 5 then. Number 5. How do we evaluate persecution in this life? Number 5 is this, do not be ashamed to suffer as a Christian. Do not be ashamed to suffer as a Christian. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him not be ashamed. What does that mean? It means this, don't have the feeling of guilt or disgrace or embarrassment or even the feeling of fear that would prevent you from obeying the Lord. Don't feel guilty for standing for Christ. Don't feel Shame or embarrassment because you're a Christian. That's what he's saying. And listen, this is exactly what the world wants you to feel. This is exactly the pressure that Christians have from the world. You should be embarrassed for believing that. You should feel shame. That is so unloving of you. This is exactly what the world wants you to feel as. If Christians are the problem, and then therefore they are to shrink back from what they believe. They're not to stand out. They're not to to stand up. Christians are the unloving ones. They're the hurtful ones. They, They should be ashamed that they would believe such gospel truth. This is exactly what the world wants. This is their MO. This is the this is what they're firing at us every single day. This feeling of embarrassment for standing for the name of Christ. That's not loving to believe that. How many times have you heard that? You're not caring for others when you do that, when you believe that. You can't believe that. It's so exclusive. That's not inclusive at all. That doesn't bring everybody in. That's, that's so exclusive of you to believe that way. So narrow-minded. So unloving. And we're supposed to be embarrassed about that. No, we, we stand with Christ in that. I didn't make it up that, that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through Him. We're not making this up. We're standing with Christ in this. But yeah, this is what the world wants. Christians that feel so ashamed and so embarrassed that it that it causes us to stop obeying, to, to second guess the Bible, to question our faith, to lack courage and boldness in the face of adversity. And here's Peter writing to those who are in the face of adversity here with Nero, and he says, Do not be ashamed to be called a Christian. It's interesting the word Christian. You know how many times it's used in the Bible? Three just three times the name Christian is used in the Bible. Once in Acts eleven twenty six, 26, once in Acts 26, 28, and here in 1 Peter 4, 15, and, and, and this name here was associated with those who would follow Christ. There was the uh, others during that time were the Herodians. They would follow Herod. There was Caesar, and he had his Caesareans. There was Christ, and he had Christians. And the name was, was first used, it was a, a derogatory name. It, it was a name of mockery and disrespect. Oh, the Christians. Oh, the Christians over there. And, and they'd be mocked for that. It was a disrespectful name that, that brought on the feeling of shame. And to be identified as a Christian during this time when Peter was writing this letter, it would signify this rejection of the Roman Empire. Accepting the name Christian could suggest rejection of governmental authority to unbelievers. And what Nero wanted to do is he wanted he wanted Christ followers to feel the shame of being called a Christian. You're like was that written then or is that written for today? Yes, and yes. It's the same play by the enemy. It has not changed. Mocking you for being called a Christian, so you would be ashamed of your faith. You'd be ashamed for what you stand for. And what does Peter say? He says this, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Well, what did the apostle Paul say in Romans 1 16? He said this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Turn with your Bibles with me. You gotta see this in Second Timothy. Turn your Bibles to Second Timothy. In CHAPTER One, verse six is what Paul says to young Timothy. As he knew in his youthfulness, he could potentially want to shrink away from standing for his faith. He says this in verse six, he said, for this, I I remind you, remember this, Timothy, I want you to grasp it, grasp this, to fan in the flame of the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on my hands. Verse seven, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Verse eight, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but what? But share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before ages began, and which now has been manifest through the appearing of our, of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death, brought life and immortality and light through the gospel for which I was appointed a, a preacher and an t- apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed Why? Why was Paul not ashamed? Here's why. For I know who I believe. He knows the gospel. He knows what Christ has done for him. He knows that his sins have been forgiven. Paul knows that he was on a path destined for hell. And in a moment, God saved him and redeemed him. And he is convinced of this in his heart. And he would die for this. And therefore, he was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And church, we got to ask you this. When the fire of persecution is turned up in your life, and it's going to happen, we know it's going to happen, when the fire is turned up, and persecution comes, and people know you're a Christian, Are you convinced in your mind enough to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? There's going to be that moment at the water cooler, isn't there, in the office? There's going to be that moment around the table with family. There's going to be that moment at the barbecue in the backyard when the weather's nice. There's going to be that moment... When you're with unbelievers and you're going to have an opportunity to not be ashamed of the gospel and simply say, yeah, I'm proud to be a Christian. I love Jesus. I'm not ashamed. We need to be as convinced as Paul was. Be as convinced as Peter was. They understood the power of the gospel in their own life that it transformed their heart that it took them out of darkness and put them into light that that Jesus gave them purpose and reason to live that he has forgiven them of all their sins in the past and the present and the future And we need to know that we need to believe that We need to know and believe that His Word now is a a lamp unto our feet and it is a light unto our path. And we need to know that there's a gospel that empowers me every day to live for Him. Why would I ever be ashamed of Jesus Christ? He's my King. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. I can take an insult. I can take the persecution. He went to the cross, so I could have eternal life. I can take that, right, church? But if you're like me, then you've been ashamed before, right? If you're like me, you've been ashamed. You want to know who wrote this letter? You guys know it's Peter. You think Peter understands? Oh, Peter understands. He looked his Savior in the eye and he said this, I'll never be ashamed of you. You know what Jesus said? Yeah, you will. Three times and it'll happen tomorrow night. And three times Peter denied association with Jesus Christ. One after the next, ashamed, ashamed, ashamed. The next time they had a conversation, they're on the beach, they're having breakfast together, a little bit of fish. What does Jesus do to Peter? He restores him. He doesn't even bring it up. He just wants to ask him a simple question Hey, Peter, do you love me? How many times do you ask him? Three. Do you love me? Do you love me? Guys, isn't that so encouraging? That the rock, Peter, denied Christ and Christ restored him to a place where he'd be the first person to stand up in Acts chapter 2 and proclaim the gospel to the Jews. He would use him in our lives. Look, church, here's the reality we're going to fail at this. We're going to fail. But we're going to be restored back to Christ every single time. And each time we're going to be restored, we're going to have a little bit more confidence the next time. We're going to have a little bit more boldness the next time. And we keep going back to what? We keep going back to the gospel. We keep going back to the grace of God every single time. So we would have the boldness and the courage to say, you know what? I'm not ashamed anymore. I'm going to stand for the truth. And if I fail, I'm just going to go back to the cross. And I'm going to receive his grace as God, as God has already shown us through Christ that he restores those who have been ashamed before. May our prayer be as the psalmist in Psalm 31, 1, saying, You, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed in your righteousness. Deliver me. In Psalm 119, 46, he said, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and will not be ashamed. Before kings, before kings, I'll give testimony and not be ashamed. In Psalm 119.80, he says, My heart, may my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be ashamed. And so, this is what Peter says in the face of persecution, in the face of hardship, when the fire has been turned up, the fiery trial has been turned up. If anyone suffers as a Christian, Let him not be ashamed. What do we do instead? Look what it says. Instead of being ashamed, look what it says. But let him glorify God in that name. Instead, that's number six, glorify God in your suffering. Instead of being ashamed, of the persecution, you glorify God in it. You glorify God in what? In in being a Christ follower. And notice this. There's an emotional contrast here between shame and praising God. You're to rejoice and be glad. Glorify God in the midst of the suffering, and because you suffer as a Christian, you're not ashamed. You you honor God. You glorify God. You praise God. You praise God for the privilege you have to suffer for Him. You praise God because you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. You. You praise God because in the moment of persecution that is happening to you, the, the blessing of God is on you and the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. And so you glorify God. Matthew five sixteen, Jesus said this, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so instead of being ashamed, we glorify God, we honor God, we praise God in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardship. Number seven is this. Number seven is this. Understand that suffering purifies the church. Suffering purifies the church. Look at what it says. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What is the household of God? He's talking about believers. He's talking about the church. And it says this, for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. it's a uh, The word therefore, it's just a, a term now, explanation for what he's been saying in verses 12 all the way down to, to verse 16. It, it all leads to a point of judgment. And judgment begins in the church. It's kind of an odd way to think about it. Judgment begins in the church. You think, no, judgment is going to begin with all the evildoers. No, it's going to begin in the church say, well, why, why, why would judgment begin in the household of God? What, do, what is he saying here? Well, well, this judgment in the household of God is, a, is not a judgment uh, that has to do with um, salvation. This is a judgment that has to do with purification. And because God is a holy God, and in his holiness, he does not condone sin. And that's true for the world, and it's also true for the church. And so this judgment is in regards to salvation, it's in regards to purification, it's in regards to discipline, meaning this, that the church is purified and disciplined by God. God judges his own in the sense that he purifies his own so that the church will be stronger and more effective for the kingdom of God. And this is the reality go to church and call yourself a christian it's great it's wonderful might even get a pat on the back by a few people okay yeah i'm a christian yeah everything's rosy and wonderful and then persecution comes you're like well wait a minute do i really want to be a christian now hardship comes suffering comes you go wait a minute i i I thought man i i thought being a christian meant that i was going to get healthy and wealthy and prosperous because that's what i was told I wasn't told about this persecution stuff. And when the persecution comes in, what does it do? It separates the sheep from the goats, it, sh- it separates the believer from the unbeliever. You don't just call yourself a Christian in the middle of China. You don't just call yourself a Christian in the middle of North Korea. You don't call yourself a Christian just out in the middle of nowhere unless you're what? Actually a Christian. You come to America, it's like, yeah, or you Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, yeah, you're, yeah, me too. And then persecution comes and hardship comes from the church, and what does it do? It it separates those who are pretending. It's separating those who, who, who just want the, the good part of Christianity, but actually haven't turned their life over to Christ. And this is what happens. And I think we've seen this. There's a built-in illustration for us. 2020. You want to know what's happened in 2020? Actually, it started in 2019. Here's what happened. 4,700 churches closed in 2019. Another study came out that said this, that in 2020, 7,700 churches closed. That is the equivalent to this. Every week, 75 to 150 congregations close per week. So when we leave today, 150 churches will will stop. And we'll come back next week, we'll have church, and then we'll walk out the door and 150 more. What's God doing? He's purifying. Through difficulty, through hardship, He's purifying the church. I've already told you this on the east side uh, here uh, uh, in Seattle, there's in 2020 alone, uh, 18 churches closed, 18 churches closed down. When hardship comes, churches show their true colors, don't they? When hardship comes, people show their true colors. What are you really about? What do you really love? What are you really going to stand for? And so, yes, judgment comes first to the household of God. Why? Because he's purifying his own to strengthen his own, to be more effective for the kingdom of God. And it starts there, but it doesn't end there. It starts there, but then it moves to the world. He says it begins with It begins in the household of God. What will be the the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What he's saying is this. He's saying, look, if God would go so far as to purify his own and to judge his own, what will come of those who do not obey the gospel of God? How much worse is it going to be for them? He's willing to judge his own. How much more will he judge those who have rejected his son, Jesus Christ? How much more will he come to the defense of those who have been persecuting his people? And this is a warning now to the unbelievers. This is a warning now to the lost. This is a warning to the pretenders and the fake that God is willing to purify his own people. He is willing to put them through persecution. He's willing to have them burned at the stake. And God will one day judge all those who do not believe. And what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? It is eternal separation from God. It is eternal hell. It is far worse than whatever persecution that we face today. And it's far better to endure suffering and persecution now, which is momentary, than to endure eternal suffering in the future. I want you to see this with me. We have to look at this verse. Turn to 2 Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. This is a warning passage, church, for any pretender. Paul again writing to this church. He says this in verse four, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in all the afflictions that you are enduring. Verse five, this is evidence. What's evidence? The persecutions and the trials and the steadfastness of faith. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered, what? Worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord, away from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled among all who have... Believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. It's exactly what Peter is saying. We suffer now as believers. The persecution comes now, but it's nothing in comparison that's going to come for those who do not believe. Eternal destruction. And so believers have their trials now and our glory later. And the lost have their glory now and their eternal judgment later. This is what he's saying when it says in 1 Peter they're scarcely saved. He's not saying that it's barely, they're barely, they're barely they're, the righteous are barely saved. He's saying they're, they're saved with difficulty, that it's hard. They're living the, the Christian life and the way that God wants us to live it is going to come with difficulty. But what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? It's hard for the believer, horrific for the believer now. It'll be much more horrific for the unbeliever when eternity comes and Christ comes back and he will repay. You say, okay, Joe, what, what, what are we supposed to do in the meantime with all this? All this persecution and hardship on, on the, the believer, what are we supposed to do with it? Well, here's the good news. Uh, I'm not going to make anything up. I'm just going to let the Bible speak for itself. Look at verse 19. This is what we're to do. This is so good. This is so good. This is what we're to do. Therefore, he sums this whole section up. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Here's the action. Here's what it all leads to. Therefore, summing it all up, this entire paragraph, This is what we're to do. We are to entrust our souls to a faithful creator. Put your trust and hope in God. That's it. Trust the Lord. He says, this is God's will for you. You suffer according to God's will. This is God's will for you. This is ordained by God. It's placed here by God. But behind the persecution, behind the hardship." Behind the suffering at the hands of the oppressors stands a wise God. And Peter reminds us of that that simple statement, according to the will of God. It reminds us that this is not accidental. It's not out of nowhere. It's been predetermined by God. This is part of the purging. This is part of the purification of your own heart and for the church. And he's urging us, don't be discouraged by this. Don't be dismayed by this. Don't be ashamed by this. Rather, entrust your soul to a faithful God. And to entrust your soul is a banking term. It's a leaving a deposit down. It conveys the picture of, of a precious treasure being deposited as a trust into the hands of another person. And so what you're saying to, to the Lord is this. I'm going to commit. I'm going to entrust my soul to you as you will safeguard it and keep it until I meet you face to face. I am placing it in your hands. This entire situation, all this hardship, all this persecution, I entrust my soul to you. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? You give him your heart, you give him your life. It's interesting when Jesus was on the cross after a night of brutal persecution, the most worst persecution that any man could muster up against another person. From the cross, what did he say? He said this, Into your hands I entrust my spirit. Into your hands, God, I entrust my soul. What's interesting here, what I find interesting here, is it says I'm going to trust their souls to a faithful creator. This would have been a perfect spot for Peter to say, "Entrust, entrust your soul to a really good God. Entrust your soul to the shepherd. You could have used kind of a more endearing term, a little bit more of like a, a counseling kind of kind of, hey, he's he's warm and, and fuzzy and loves you. No, he goes, he goes straight to this. Entrust your soul to the one who created you. Entrust your soul to the one who knows you very well. Entrust your soul to the one who is sovereign over everything, sovereign over the situation. He knows your needs. He knows what you can handle. He knows what you can't handle. He is your creator. Entrust your soul to him. Why? Because he knows what he's doing. He created everything. And he's faithful. So we come down to the end of this and we just... We just kind of take a deep breath and we say, okay, God, you created this all. You know what's going on in my life. You know the hardship that I endure. You know the persecution that I go through. I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm going to rejoice. This is no surprise to me, and I'm going to trust you. We lay our head down on the pillow at night, and we take a deep breath, and we say, okay, I'm going to trust you, Lord. I don't understand. I don't get it. If I was in control, it would be much different. But I'm not. You're the faithful creator. And I will trust you. I love how the the hymn writer says it's a a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful song. We sing it, and we sing it with such passion. We're going to do it here in a minute. He just says this, when peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. The only way we can say it is well with my soul is if we have entrusted our souls to a faithful creator. And we can sing that with such passion because that's what we desire so much. When the hardships and persecutions come, we we just say it's well with my soul because you're in control and you're sovereign, and I'm I, I'm just gonna trust you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reminder from your word. God, God I'm up here challenged. <laughs> I'm up here challenged. I'm up here saying these things, feeling the conviction that the Word of God brings, feeling the comfort that the Word of God brings and feeling the challenge as well, that in every situation to entrust my soul to a faithful creator while continually doing good. Lord, I pray that ultimately at the end of this, all the things that we've studied over the last couple weeks on this section, that we would remember that truth that you are a faithful creator. You know what is best for us and we can trust you. We can trust you. We can say it is well with my soul because we've entrusted our soul to the faithful creator. Lord, we do ask that you would help us by your spirit. Give us courage. Give us boldness in the face of persecution. We want our lives to mean something for you while we have it here on earth. So help us, Lord, to share the gospel, to live for you, knowing that hardship and persecution will come from that, and we are not ashamed of that at all. Give us the grace each day. In Jesus' name, amen.